Guys, happy May the 4th. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. May the 4th be with you all. It's almost embarrassing that that hasn't come up already. Yeah. This is the internet's favorite day of the year, actually. Yeah. Boom. Agreed. Yeah, you guys were having a great <laughs> chat about um, all the Star Wars films and, and how they should all come out on today. You know, the May the 4th of whatever year it happens to be. Right. Because, you know, $4 billion around Christmas time isn't enough. Yeah. Well, it's... It's tough to make money. <laughs> but it's like a symbolic gesture. It would be a symbolic gesture. Right. Like the fans all over the world would appreciate it. Yeah, probably. Even more. So we've got a special guest with us. Our first ever guest, friend of the show, Dan Hawk, is joining us because, well, because why not? So hello, Dan. <laughs> Greetings. Why don't you introduce yourself? Because I'm not sure how many of our listeners know who you are. Sure. Yeah. Well, like... Uh, uh... Like you said, my name is Dan Hawk. Um, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and uh, have been for quite a few years. Um, do a, quite a bit of different kind of photography, and have just built up uh, some some good. Have had some friendly banter with all three of you um, on Twitter. And oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I <laughs> when I saw that this uh, podcast was getting started, uh, you know, a couple what it's been a couple of months now, I think. Uh, I just started started listening and. Uh, and love the the topics you guys are dealing with stuff that's uh, kind of usually kind of front of mind for me. So, yeah, you're causing all of us to blush. And, and partly this is your fault because I, I distinctly remember you were one of our first reviews on iTunes. So we really appreciate that. That that really made our day, and uh, we're we're extremely extremely excited to have you on on the show because the conversation that you initiated earlier today on Twitter. <laughs> you mean the tweet storm, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it was, it was like pulling the trigger on something that we <laughs> we're all very happy to discuss. So Good. I have to say guys, Dan is like, he is the creator of probably one of my favorite 365 day projects ever. Yeah. Um, so I, I just going to throw that out there. He made me blush about five minutes ago or so. So I'm going to make him blush. Oh, uh, we got a link to that in the show notes. I, I really fantastic work. We're all about blushing here on the show. <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> and Canadian weather, but I'm not easily embarrassed. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just try harder. It's all. It's all good. So why don't we uh, why don't we start off by uh, doing a little bit of follow up? Um, we actually just got word of a, an article where we uh, were quoted earlier today. Um, Drew Kaufman um, on his Extra Textuals blog wrote about the natural progression of photo technology, which is something that we touched upon um, in a previous episode where we were talking about DSLR versus mirrorless uh, technology in uh, in cameras. I, I thought this was a really thoughtful post. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Drew has a very positive outlook on the technological aspect of photography, and that's something I really appreciate because he always focuses on the essential and not he, he doesn't get too distracted with all the gear talk and, 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 and that kind of stuff. And it's good to keep, you know, to, to keep focused on, on what matters. And at the end of the day, what matters is creating images that you're, you're happy with and that's that's uh, an incredible article. He basically talks about how photography has been uh, made more available, more accessible for people who otherwise wouldn't be photographers or wouldn't consider themselves photographers. And that's an amazing point and a very important one as well. Yeah. Uh, I I think I mean I couldn't agree more with with his overall with his overall take on it. What do you guys think about the iPhone angle? Because that to me stood out as something that. Um, I mean, it seems obvious, but it's 
I wonder how how real that's going to be. This future where, um, for most people, the iPhone uh, of of the future becomes their one and only camera because it's good enough to take photos at a level that we're now only able to capture in uh, in DSLRs and mirrorless cameras. And to to me, what makes it uh, thought provoking is like what actually happens to the camera market when our smartphones get to that point. Right, because we're already at a at a point, I think, technologically, where a lot of what's being improved in cameras is, um, you, you know, there's things like dynamic range. We talked about how that's like the final frontier, but in terms of resolution, in terms of all of that, we're we're kind of at a plateau where there's not that much more to improve. So I just it's it's interesting to to think of the form factor of the smartphone potentially taking over a lot of the current smart uh, the current um, camera market. Well, give it a few months, guys, and we might have dual cameras on the back of a smartphone. Might have to have this conversation all over again. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, you know, it's kind of kind of crazy. So I've I've been an iPhone user since day one. I waited in line and paid way too much money for the for the first model, and um, it was it's amazing how much. I mean, you, it's almost cliche to say it now, but it's amazing how much the the phone has the camera in that phone has progressed, and. I remember probably three, maybe even four years ago, lamenting that my I had a a Sony uh, Nex 5N. So you know, pr- back when the Nex was the Nex was the name for the email cameras. Yeah. And I remember even even then feeling like, okay, the iPhone doesn't have the lens, it doesn't have the big sensor, but man, the processing is sure better. It it really nailed color. It nailed. Um, you wouldn't think that it would have quite the dynamic range, but there's something about what Apple's doing with um, the processing that just elevates it to a, a level. Kind of maybe um, it's it's fighting above its weight. We'll put it that way. Fair point. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's um, it's true of a lot of other um, types of mobile uh, camera phones, but 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 the iPhone kind of sets the bar. And what I like about it, and this is kind of how all my friends are. Yeah, you, you people just they just think of this. They use it like a like an old point and shoot camera, and that's kind of how I grew up. Um, just I carried I was carrying a little a little chintzy little camera with me all the time, taking pictures of just snapshots of everything. And my iPhone has taken that has taken that over. I still use it a lot. It's just stuff that's a little bit. I don't think of it as quite as serious. Right. And I end up taking snapshots, kind of like the stuff that was posted in uh, this article that Drew posted in the article, especially that last shot towards the end. Yeah, but those are the moments that stick with us, right? And that's that's what I like about it is that it facilitates this kind of completely effortless capture of moments because you don't even have that that process of thinking about it as a photograph that you're making and it's this whole endeavor. It's just, no, you're, you're taking a snapshot and the processing ensures that it will be a memory that uh, you know, is, is properly captured. And yes, you don't have a lot of editing leeway and things like that. But for this kind of shooting, it's, it's, that's really not the point. And for me, this is, uh, it's top of mind because I recently went from having a compact camera to not having a compact camera. I just have my, you know, my main system now and I expected to miss it. But part of the reason that I don't is, well, part of the reason that I don't is because I'm in love with the X Pro 2. But the other side of it is that for the kind of shooting that I think compact cameras are best at, um, my iPhone is is great at. Like it's it's perfect for that. I don't know that I need a dedicated compact camera 
for that kind of shooting. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting scenario. And I think it's, it's especially interesting that photographers, you know, not just, uh, normal people, but, but people who typically obsess over camera gear are increasingly starting to have a similar outlook, you know, not everybody, but just in general, it's a trend. Right. I, you know, there is also the reality that I don't know about you guys, but I, the live photo thing that they have now where you get that three seconds on, you know, the the 6S and the 6S plus they shoot those three seconds, a short little GIF kind of GIF, GIF video, whatever you want to call it. Um, for me, like that's my, that's what I use the iPhone for. So, um, not necessarily snapshots, but I love those little videos. You guys agree. Like, what do you guys think? Do you think that's a step where a smartphone will take it that much further than what any sort of camera manufacturer could do? Probably because those make the most sense as memory making uh, machines, right? It's like they transport you back to that particular moment, right? Like no other capture method can really. Yeah, exactly. But that's not technologically unique to the smartphone. I mean, you could conceivably implement a similar capture mode on a dedicated camera and it would be basically the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that would be tough. <laughs> yeah, probably because the smartphone is always on you, right? That's its big advantage. And I think at the end of the day, when when all is said and done, the smartphone's greatest contribution to the world of photography is painting a very clear line in the sand. Like once the smartphone camera is evolved to its full potential, uh, there's going to be photography as a professional activity that will still require a high-end dedicated machine. And then there's going to be everything else. And the smartphone's going to dominate that everything else category. It's already doing it, but it's going to be so much more pronounced, even 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 much more pronounced than it is right now. And that's, I mean, what Dan was saying before, the processing power that smartphones have is something that we've never seen before in in even professional cameras and that's where they have a a huge lead and that's only going to get more pronounced because the the companies that are making smartphones that's their strength that's what they're good at so i don't think the gap's gonna gonna get smaller anytime soon well in some ways when you compare what your phone can do it makes your makes your big expensive fancy camera feel kind of hamstrung Right, and, I, and maybe because in some cases there just there are too many options. But you know, it's kind of funny. But um, I had tweeted earlier today asking for film photographers for some advice because I actually yesterday pulled the trigger on a point and shoot film camera that literally has no controls except turn it on, and you can turn the flash on and off. But that's it. Nice, awesome. Which one is it? It's. Um, Olympus, it's so the American version is called the Stylus Epic, and but the one I bought is actually the Japanese version, which is the MJU2. Way cooler name. Yeah. Oh my god, I had this camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not me, but not me, my dad, obviously, because but back when it was like groundbreaking. Yeah, I had one, one of the silver ones with the zoom lens, and I gave it away at Goodwill years ago. <laughs> so don't tell anyone but a friend of mine actually lost mine oh. some friend <laughs> yeah that was fun <laughs> well so the reason i got it is because i really love the idea of autofocus i don't even have an autofocus film camera so that was the big thing i want an autofocus film camera that's so small i can throw it in my phone in my pocket it's the size of my iphone basically a little thicker but actually shorter and then i can just mail off the film get the scans back i don't have to think about it i don't have to do anything except compose the shot 
But no controls, which kind of is a perfect segue into your little tweet storm. But no controls? Like, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Turns out controls are overrated. <laughs> when did you jump ship? <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I've been trying to figure out now is I usually, when I shoot film, I usually um, overexpose on purpose when I'm shooting color negative film. Right. And there's not a really a way to do that because it's just reading the... Uh, the, the code right off of the canister. Right, so you can't manually set the ISO, right? I, I might have to scratch off some codes on the back of the film canisters. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a control, though, so no. <laughs> it, would, it would be, it would be. Yeah, but that's fun. So, but I, I won't have it till like, next week. It's coming from Great Britain, so it's going to take a little while to get here. But in what context do you use this camera over your existing, like, for example, the OM-1 that, you, that I know that you own? Yeah, so I, I shoot two, I have two film cameras that I shoot fairly often. Um, I carry an Olympus OM-1, and I almost always have a 35 F2 on it. Right. And then I also shoot, I don't know, I'd probably say about one roll a month in a, a Hasselblad um, 500cm nice. with an 80mm. Nice. And, and I really like both of them, but they're both manual focus. They both are, they have no, it, there are literally three, there's two controls. There's two sets of controls, and that's pretty much it. Um, so I really like them. Here's the thing, though. I find that I don't like carrying the OM-1 and my digital camera, and I, and I love the idea of bringing a, a film camera with me just as a pocketable, really small piece. Right. And, and the OM-1 is just big enough and heavy enough, and I have to think about it a little too much. So I thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to just still shoot film but take all the decision-making out of it and see what I come up with. So, so that was the thing. So I expect that it'll become kind of my daily carry camera on the film side. Uh, I'm doing a 365 project this year where I'm shooting at least one frame of film a day. So my, my plan is to insert this into that into that uh, project. He doesn't just do a 365 project. He does a 365 film project. <laughs> you know, well, you know, honestly, I had done... <laughs> 365, I did it last year with digital, which was a lot of fun. But by the end of the year, I, I found that the, the post-processing and deciding what I was going to post, it was just a little overwhelming. So with film, one of the things I'm doing is I, I literally just mail off the film, and when I get them back, I do just minor um, exposure corrections, and then I post them. Man, I scan my own film, so I, 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 the, the thought of doing a 365 film project just would kill me. <laughs> I would love to scan my own. I just haven't. That's a whole different... Yeah, that's a can of worms you don't want to open, trust me. <laughs> exactly. And I, I've actually tried a couple different labs um, this year so far. So it's, um, it's been a fun project. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, as a geek, it's, it's great because it's, uh, it's a challenge, right? It, it, it's yeah. something new to learn and to master, and I, I like that. But it, once you get over that initial excitement, yeah, it's just too, too tedious, and it takes too much time. So. Well, let me throw something out there, too. This is, I actually wrote a post about it when I first, at the beginning of the year, and I literally decided to do this on January 1st. I wasn't going to do anything. And then that day, I thought, you know... I, I want to challenge myself to something. And so what I, th w the main reason I did this is because film still feels like some kind of weird voodoo to me. Right. And, and yet it's not. Um, I used to shoot film all the time and I had no idea what I was doing. And I was using a point and shoot most of the time. And I love those pictures. And so what I wanted to, I wanted to get to a point where shooting film, I'm as comfortable shooting film as I am shooting digital. 
and I'm, I don't feel like I'm always nervous that I'm doing something wrong. Because the truth is, on a roll of 36 frames, I usually only get like one or two that are clunkers. I mean, they're not all perfect, but I like them. Right. And, and maybe one or two is just horrendously over or underexposed, but that's... It's impressive. Yeah, but the keeper rate is a lot higher than with digital, definitely. It is. But, and it's because I'm a little more intentional, but um, I wanted to shoot so much film this year that I don't feel nervous when I pick up the film camera. Like I'm, I, that I don't worry about, well, am I wasting this frame? And do I really know what I'm doing? Because it's, it's not rocket science. It literally is chemistry and physics. And you do have quite a bit of wiggle room to fix yeah. uh, a broken image yeah. in post. Like you can, in, in the develop in the dark room, you can do all sorts of things to recover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a lot more flexible than people give it credit for. So, so that's kind of why I'm why I'm tackling that specifically this year. And then the autofocus thing, it's it's mainly because I wanted to probably just throw that in for a month or two and just say, okay, how does what does this do to it? Um, and take me back to composition and really looking for moments and, and uh, eliminating some of the, uh, the other decision-making parts. It's interesting, though, because you were talking just a minute ago about the, um, you know, trying to make the most of the, uh, the shots that you are getting on a roll of film and feeling comfortable enough with your technique that you're able to not worry anymore. Um, and the article of yours that we, that we have linked in the, in the show notes, I think, is a great primer for people who are feeling that anxiety still because... A lot of times when you've come up with, uh, you, you know, you've, your photography career or, or hobby has begun with heavily automated cameras, it's actually really difficult to go back the other way because you've got you've to almost take on a bunch of additional effort, right? Because if you start with that effort and then suddenly the automation appears, then it's one thing. But for those who are starting now with, you know, iPhone photography and suddenly they get a camera and it's like, well, now you got to worry about ISO. You have to worry about aperture and shutter speed. I mean, you don't have to, but you you should if you want to get a little more hands-on with your photography. And right. it's, it's daunting. Yeah. Um, and it's not just, that doesn't re- apply only to film, right? Because it's it's a set of controls that we also deal with in the digital realm. Um, but it's just, a, it's a whole different set of things to concern yourself with. And, and what I wonder is... Um, for those people who who are tackling that right now, is it turning them off of the actual craft of photography? Like, are they being frustrated by these technical details and not focusing on the composition, not focusing on the lighting, not focusing on whatever? Like, it's it, it feels like it would be a lot to juggle for someone who um, has all the enthusiasm in the world and just wants to take a step forward from their you know smartphone camera into something a little more... Um, advanced, whether it's a DSLR or some mirrorless camera, but yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing to go the other way. I totally agree. Um, I had a um, I have a really good friend that has a Nikon, probably like a, a D fifty two hundred, something right. like that. Yeah, and he's been taking some some really great pictures. He takes a lot of pictures with his uh, with his phone. I think he has like a Windows one one of the one of the Windows seven mobile, you know. Uh, one of the Lumia one of those, phones. One of those, yeah, 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 yeah. One of those, and it's and it's great. He takes some great pictures. He's been ad- editing in Snapseed, and he's got some really cool things he's doing. But routinely, he would run into these things where um, it's you know, a little overprocessed, or it's low, it's lower res than he wants, and he can't do stuff with it he wants to. So he got this nicer camera, and I think the part that's a little tricky is that 
in his mind, hey, I'm shooting with a much nicer camera. If I just put it in auto mode, I should come up with a lot nicer pictures. And he's been really frustrated that right. the shots he gets from right. auto mode on his DSLR are not as compelling or fun or satisfying as the stuff he gets with his phone. Yeah. And I think, and, and it's and interesting because I actually went to a family photo shoot he was doing, kind of a funny photo shoot, and uh, on purpose funny. And we went there and <laughs> it was funny because I noticed him, he was getting so worried about controls and what he was doing that he was, he was starting to kind of lose the framing and he was losing the, the fun and the energy. And I finally just told him, I said, put, put that thing in auto and just shoot, man. Because <laughs> practice that stuff somewhere else. Don't do that when, when, when important stuff is happening. Right. When, you're trying to, when memories are happening, don't worry about your settings. Um, you can worry about your settings at important times once that's comfortable in second nature. I like that. I like that quote. <laughs> I, cool. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like, you, <laughs> I feel like you just have to, you kind of learn this stuff. Practice, shoot a lot and practice individual pieces right and that's when i wrote that article it, it's funny because that article is actually it's built out of about eight different emails with different friends who had gotten their first real camera and i was giving them hints and tips and i finally realized you know what i should just i should just write an article out of this to take some pictures showing what parts of the camera look like and help people understand what these this kind of three-legged stool looks like yeah, you know, as you kind of piece these things together. So, yeah, my my advice to almost everybody is, hey, you know, get the camera, get comfortable with it, make sure you know what all where all the buttons are and what they do, and then put yourself in aperture priority mode and start playing with the aperture and see what it does. And then after that, try shutter speed, and then after that, try ISO, and then start putting them together. Yeah, and that's that's awesome advice. Honestly, I think I think that's advice that that we can all carry forward to. Um, to people who ask us similar questions. I, I know for me, the frustration, I mean, I share some of the frustration of, of people who, who are looking for that advice because the problem is for a lot of people, they don't actually have a lot of time to dedicate to the hobby. So they want to get better photos, but they don't like, they, there aren't enough hours in their day to put in the kind of time that it requires to get all of this technique to second nature level. And, and that's the, I think that's the most difficult period of time is that learning phase because you're trying to still get satisfaction out of the art of photography but it's also frustrating you because you've got all of these new things that you've got to pick up so i think that that um piece of advice about breaking it down to one at a time um is perfect because then it's it's less stuff to be worried about at any given time um and it's also something that is quite easy with today's cameras because they tend to do a very good job of, of compensating for whatever setting you are controlling. They'll, they'll figure out the rest. They typically do a great job at it. So, um, you know, that's, that's something that um, works in their favor. Yeah. Well, and one thing that's kind of weird, I've always felt bad uh, because every friend that gets a camera, I, I always hate to tell them, hey, by the way, this, this is kind of my belief say you probably should get rid of your kit lens or your 55 to 210 that came with your camera and you should go get a 51.8. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that's the, cause you do that and you put that on the camera and you start playing with the aperture and all of a sudden what aperture does becomes abundantly clear. 
Yeah, that's when you see the difference. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not, and it's not that. And everybody goes through their 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 bokeh phase, right? Everybody goes through their. I want to make everything blurry with a razor thin line of, of focus. Hey, I love bokeh. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> But you know, I think part of the problem is that people these days seem to be more used to figuring things out by trial and error. Mm -hmm. And with photography, that's a terribly inefficient process. That's that's just about the worst way you can approach it because it's things are just difficult enough that it, they're not obvious and just it's going to take you a lot of time and effort until you figure how everything clicks together just by trying 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 until it eventually clicks so and part of the problem is that the smartphone kind of encourages that thought process a little bit because mm -hmm. on the smartphone you don't have to think about anything you just hit click and it's sort of a gateway drug in, in that it gets you hooked uh, into photography and you want to create even better images but when it comes uh, the time for you to take control of it that's when you need to know what you're doing so the whole i'll just figure it out process that's when it kind of breaks down a little bit Yeah, And I think that's why articles like yours, Dan, are so important because if people just take, it, it doesn't take that long, if people just take a couple hours to read what it is that makes an image and how those three elements, aperture, shutter speed and ISO, impact the end result, that's all it takes. Then, of course, the more you play with the camera and the more you experiment, the better. But you need to put in that that initial effort of, of trying to understand how it all works because if you just try and figure it out yourself I mean eventually you're going to get there but it's going to be a, a lot longer road and, and, and a much more difficult one yeah I totally agree that's that's um So I, uh, I I shot film a lot as a kid, and then um, through high school, and then up into college, and even even probably up till around 2001, 2002, I was shooting with a, a Canon Rebel 2000, the you know just an, old, an SLR film camera. Yeah. But I never got very good at it because I just didn't do enough shooting and then looking what I did what I did, and oddly. Even though I would would have considered myself kind of a photographer back then, I had no idea what I was doing. And then the iPhone, taking pictures of the iPhone and doing that trial and error stuff is what got me interested in shooting again. And that's why I bought my first digital camera. Um, and and initially I started off in auto and and then I just started adding stuff to it. So right. I, I totally agree with you. It's we're in a we're in a, just a different time um, in history where it's so easy to to jump in and do this. And yet it's, I think it seems very, um, people don't, they don't know that it's as easy as it is. Um, right. To, to actually figure this stuff out technically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people tend to think that it's a, such a super complicated uh, thing that they, they don't even, they, they don't feel capable of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just too bad. I mean, it, I'm speaking from personal experience because that's how I felt a couple, a couple years ago. Like, I had always been super intimidated by the theoretical and technical aspects of photography. I thought it was super complicated. And uh, I had never picked up a camera like seriously. But what I did was I I I remember I I bought a, a book on on Amazon, a Kindle ebook that it's called Understanding Exposure. I think it's the best-selling photography book ever. 
And that had an eye-opening effect on me, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I read it through cover to cover. And once I, the, the, the first thing I decided the, the minute I was done with the book was I'm going to sign up for, a, for photography lessons because this is, I totally want to do this. I totally want to figure this out. And I, I just understood that having someone lead you through the way is a much more efficient process to figure everything out. And that's, I mean, that's how my personal journey has been. And of course, everyone has their own their own experience and they're all equally valid, but that's just my two cents, you know? I like that. So what do you think, guys? I mean, we just, Dan just said that, you know, with today's day and age, there's a different method of, of learning this photography. But despite the fact, despite that fact, we have a camera company who seems to be... Um, held back in the in the old days, in the limelight of their shadow, maybe? Is that the best way of saying it? And they just released our favorite, or my favorite camera, I guess. And uh, it's like, this is the reason that Dan's on the show to begin with, is his awesome tweet storm. I, we got to get into this. Think, All right. I think you mean a rant. Yeah, because I... You thought we'd forget, huh? <laughs> so do you want to summarize what your, what your thoughts were? Because I think everybody knows what, what our thoughts are. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This, this such a, I think it was interesting. You guys are pointing out that this was, they released this new camera, but they actually did something like this here, like a year and a half, two years ago. And the part that's just really weird about it is that, um, I, I totally understand the place for it. And I have a couple of buddies who are really, you know, one of them is just a hardcore pinhole uh, film shooter. Right. And, and also just has a whole bunch of different, you know, four by fives and large format. And he says, I think it's really cool. I just don't understand how on the, who justifies spending that much money on that camera. Because, I mean, essentially you've taken something really bonehead and basic and you, <laughs> you basically stripped out half of the stuff that would make it cost a lot of money. Right. And you're charging extra money because it has some kind of special aesthetic. Because it took some effort to take those things out, man. <laughs> uh, well, so here's here's kind of my thought on it. Is I I was about two years ago, I would guess maybe longer. <clears throat> I first picked up my current OM1 Olympus, and I actually had had the OM lenses before. I was using them on an adapter with my Sony cameras, but I got the film camera, and it was in great shape, and I and I loved it. I was shooting with it, and thought this is amazing. It it has these it has um, the the Olympus cameras are kind of cool. The OM cameras have the shutter speed and the aperture both on the um, the apertures on the barrel of the lens, but the shutter speed is on a dial right behind the lens mount. Right. And then you have, uh, and then of course ISO. You just put the film in you want. And so really, just a great camera, really solid, really easy to use. It does have a light meter, um, and. I use it occasionally, but what I loved about it is that it's you're just down to these two controls and one control you you choose when you put the film in. And I I remember I was having a conversation on Twitter with John Kerry, um, and John has a site called Fifty Foot Shadows. Yeah, amazing. Widely loved. Yeah, he's he's a really sweet guy, um, and I've had some great conversations with him over the years. But I we were talking, and I think I had asked him something about because he shoots with an OM2 occasionally. And I just was asking him about it, and, and I just said, yeah, man, this is such a cool camera. I really wish that Olympus would just make a digital version of this camera. No weird settings, just put a digital sensor in there where the film would be, and let me put a card in there, 
I'll take shots and when I'm done, I'll just pull the card out and put them on my computer. So I've been thinking that something like this would be cool for a long time. I, when I look at the Leica camera, the, the MD, it looks beautiful to me. And I have the only, I've only owned one Leica and it's not something that's normal. It's kind of a weirdo, uh, strange camera that my brother-in-law um, gave me that he, that he found. But when I hold them, when you hold them in their hand, they're just a whole different thing. They are this heavy brass with, I mean, just, they're amazing. They're amazing pieces of work. So I, I get it and I understand and there's a click and a me mechanical nature to the whole thing that's that no other camera does. But I feel like they've gotten so, they're so far down this path of our stuff is luxury, our stuff's going to be really expensive, that they don't see that they could, I think, capture a completely different kind of audience. The kind of people who are really into film Leica cameras that are, that are buying M2s and M3s right. and collecting lenses. Because you can buy an M2 or an M3 for you know somewhere in the you know six to six hundred six hundred to a thousand dollar US price range. So that's kind of when I look at this, I think, man, I would love to own one of those. But there's not, there's no chance that I'm going to spend multiple thousand dollars on a camera like that. Um, and it's primarily because I think um, Alvaro, you said it really well in that last episode. Like, if <laughs> it seems kind of nice, but um, I would just buy the camera that has the LCD and all the stuff built in, right? Because we're not we're not talking about a, a technically different camera. It does the same thing. So here's a question for you guys, because we we've been. I mean, last episode we were kind of critical of of the Leica uh, MD, um, and I don't I don't really want us to come off as as negative in general toward toward Leica, um, because I know I for one am, am not. I don't have that feeling, and I. I just wanted to ask you guys how much of the frustration that we're feeling um, toward the MD might be rooted in the fact that we actually do really want a camera like this and we're just kind of annoyed with the fact that the only company that's actually executed on this concept has done it in a way that puts it out of our reach. Oh, that is a very, very spot on point. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean... What? Alvaro, get on board. No. Well, hang on. It was a question. It was a question, not a statement. I'm just asking yeah, yeah, you guys. Yeah, yeah, no, I, think... I, I got it. I got it. I mean, <laughs> I get the instinctive appeal of a digital camera that is mimicking a film camera. And if it was super well executed, I said it on the previous episode that I don't have a problem with that. Then my main problem with the Leica Q, aside from the price, of course, the Leica MD, sorry. Like a Q is a whole different story. <laughs> but yeah, my main problem with the Leica MD is not the concept. It's the, the fact that I don't consider it to be a well thought through camera. So, but that's, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, but what I, what I wanted to say is that uh, I don't think a digital camera that is mimicking the simplicity and the overall design of a film camera, I'm not 100% sure that that is a valid concept in that no matter how well you manage to replicate the experience and the the controls and the hardware, at the end of the day, you're going to be limited by the sensor you choose to put in the camera when you release it. And that sensor is going to be stuck in time. Whereas with film camera, you're effectively choosing a brand new sensor every time you change your film roll. And you have... The beauty of shooting film is that you have almost unlimited 
choices when it comes to uh, the kind of look that you want to get out of your images because you have not only the particular film stock to choose, you can also choose to uh, underexpose it or overexpose it and you can uh, pull it and, 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 you know, in the processing later or, or push it. So you have tons of creative decisions to make that have a very clear impact on the way your pictures are going to look. And yes, of course, with a digital sensor, you can then shoot raw and you can edit and post uh, and, and sort of do something like that. But I feel it's a lot more limited. It's limited in terms of resolution. It's limited in terms of dynamic range. The hardware features of the sensor are locked in time the second you buy the camera. And that's something that it just doesn't happen with a film camera. Well, that's true. But on the other hand, how much resolution... Are we talking like I, at this point, it may be true. Let's say that it is true with the sensor that's in the MD now. But we were just talking about this on a previous episode. What, how much of this is actually a limitation of what digital can do versus what digital can do today? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't mean, I mean, digital resolution today has already crossed what 35 millimeter film can do. That's right. And what it I, did yeah. a few years ago. So yeah. It's not a problem of resolution. I'm just, it's a, philosophical issue. No, if, I take if, your point, and I think it's a good one because you're, you're right. I mean, effectively, each film stock is its own different kind of sensor. But the way I look at it, that's kind of, uh, you know, having a digital sensor in a camera like that really just, it gives you the same advantages, but it defers certain decisions for later. So whereas on the film version, you would be choosing the film stock before you shoot, Right. On the digital version, you would have the flexibility to change your mind or make several decisions or decide on all of the film stocks, whatever you want, um, after shooting. So it's it's kind of deferring that, which I understand does impact the creative process of shooting. And so in some sense, any digital version of this camera will be uh, will, will provide a different experience than what its film equivalent might do. Um but at the same time, I'm wondering if that's the core appeal, right? Like, is, is that actually what makes this idea appealing or is it something else? What I'm just trying to say is that uh, if you look at a Leica M3, which was released in the 40s, I believe. Uh, I, I don't know if Dan can correct me on that because I'm not sure about the... I'm thinking 50s maybe, but... Uh, well, anyway, close enough. over 50, 60 <laughs> years ago. Just, that's that's ballpark. Yep. Uh, those cameras are still considered state-of-the-art by many, 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 many enthusiasts today. And the appeal that those cameras have is still very much relevant. But I don't know of a single 10-year-old digital camera that enjoys the same status today. And I'm just concerned that as appealing as today's digital cameras may look to us, 10 years from now, they're going to look as ridiculous as those cameras look today. You know what, the only, the only counterpoint I would make to that, I think you're right, but the only counterpoint I would make to that is that in order for it to be a fair comparison, um, because by the time the Leica M3 came out, the technology of film photography had already matured, whereas the digital cameras of 10 years ago were not yet at the point where um, digital cameras had matured. Like, I think a better comparison, which we can't make because it's impossible, would be to take, like, the original RX-1 or some, you know, some compact camera with a digital sensor from the past handful of years and cast that forward by a decade to see 
how it fares. Mm-hmm. Because that would be a, that would in my mind that's a more fair comparison and and unfortunately we can't really do anything more than speculate on the results of that but um, right it's just something to keep in mind because it's not it's not directly fair to to compare it the way you did only because like I said ten years ago digital camera technology was uh, not <laughs> not yet cooked right right no that's a fair that's a fair point and I, I was being perhaps a little bit too too extreme on my analogy but i mean again i think you're right it's just a it's something to to keep in mind when you're making these kinds of comparisons because it's not always that uh clear cut and unfortunately we're in a position where we don't actually understand what the future of photography is going to look like in in a digital realm because once we've once we've exceeded film in every aspect what is the next frontier right no and to bring it back to the md to the leica md to, my only concern is that is that that the, the they're making a bet on an analogy that i'm not sure is going to hold up right that's that's the only thing that i that i wanted to say that's that's all really there we go we've talked about the leica md <laughs> <laughs> done i gotta i'm gonna just quickly interject guys i'm one of those guys who would buy a leica m in half a heartbeat if they had a reasonable price so just to you know, drive home Marius's very original point, you know, half an hour ago, <laughs> I'm one of those guys. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny, Josh, you say that. And I, so, uh, I ended up with this kind of strange, it's a Leica screw mount camera. Um, okay. the, L, the LTM, like a thread mount. And it's a weird one that doesn't have a viewfinder cause it's us- normally used for microscope use. And they also sent one into space with uh, John Glenn with a special finder on. Oh, that just puts it out of this world. <laughs> Crazy, right? Uh, uh. No, literally, my, my brother, my brother-in-law, and his wife. She's a researcher at Duke, and they found it in a lab that it was going to get thrown away, and so they sent it to me. Oh my! <laughs> and so now I'm like uh, trying to figure out what lens to put on it. But I'm the same. I would love to own a Leica, but I have no use for their digital cameras and it's primarily because I don't want to support their philosophy, the direction they're going with it. And I would I would much rather spend my money on an M6 or an M3 or an M2, maybe even an M4. Right. Film. I, I would buy right. a film like I'm not going to buy a digital Leica. Uh, right. And the problem is that they're trying to make a statement that their digital Leicas are as, uh, are as able to withstand the test of time as their film Leicas. That's what they're trying to sell you. Not going to happen. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just not buying it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm right there with you. Oh, that's some great follow-up. <laughs> 45 minutes. Right. 43 minutes of follow-up. That was like, that was like two <laughs> points of follow-up. You should probably talk about it next week, too. <laughs> uh, okay. You know what? I'm, I'm going to skip one of the things here because I actually want to hear Alvaro talk a little bit about his review. So uh, one of the nice things that happened in this past week is that... Um, Alvaro's review of the Ona Brixton bag went up on Tools and Toys, and it's one that I've been waiting to read for a while because I've I've always had this um, soft spot, I guess, for the way Ona bags look, and I, I wanted to get some some real-world feedback on how they actually function um, over time, and I, I think it was an excellent review. Thanks. I mean, uh, I felt much the way that, that you just described. I, I had always had, I had always been super interested in those bags because I think they're just the most beautiful camera bags I'd, I've ever seen, and probably not just camera bags, bags, period. Uh, I really like the classic look that they have, especially the leather ones. I believe they are 
about as timeless as you can get in a camera bag. And I've always been drawn to that whole buying something that's going to endure for decades, maybe even generations. I, I'm fully on board with that philosophy. So that it's, it's, I guess, understandable that these uh, got my attention, right? And um, it took me a while to decide which one I was, I was going to buy because I was concerned that the Brixton would be too big for me. And in the end, unfortunately, that proved to be the case. Uh, and I guess it's not just the size of it, but rather the weight that that turned out to be a little a little too much for me. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, this is clearly the best bag I've ever owned, and and I'm not for one second. I'm not uh, I'm not regretting buying it, not at all. I mean, I'm, I I probably would buy it again, uh, but I would buy it knowing what it is and what it isn't, and I kind of wanted it to be this bag that you always have on you that looks cool that is that is right by your side every day at, at every time right and and it's not it's just not that kind of bag it's too heavy for that it's a great way to take your gear when you have to go on a shoot and you have to go across town or or you have to take a trip and basically as long as you can find a place to leave the bag and then take your gear out and shoot and come back to the bag and change lenses or whatever that's fine it excels at that if that's what you need i don't think you can get a better bag than, than this one well i gotta ask though I, i'll quickly i'm just gonna quickly like ask here though if if, if it's too heavy and like would the prince treat the smaller version then the smaller own a bag that basically is the same bag but just smaller like that one won't be as heavy can't carry as much so like is that the happy medium then probably i mean to be fair the the fact that the overall package is too heavy is not necessarily the fault of the bag it's just that by having a bigger bag you're naturally going to want to put more stuff in it and the more stuff you put in the heavier it is and I just believe the form factor of the Brixton lends itself to being filled with too much gear. And it reaches the point where it is just not practical to carry on you for several hours at a time. Yeah, fair enough. So probably, you're probably correct. You're probably spot on that the, that the Prince Street would be an ideal size. Uh, unfortunately, if you need to carry a 13-inch laptop, that's something you can't do with the Prince Street. A 13-inch? Yeah, 13-inch laptop does not fit in the Prince Street. Yeah. Oh, well, that's kind of a kicker, isn't it? It's up to 11 inches yeah. only. So that was that was the only reason why I picked the Brixton, actually, because I, I do own a 13-inch laptop, and I, I wanted to be able to take it inside the bag. And so I took a, a gamble, and I I wanted to... I mean, I, I, I was hoping that it would be... Okay, and it is. I mean, if I take the laptop and just the camera with one lens, it's okay. It's perfectly fine. It's it's not a problem at all. Uh, so I guess the, the the only problem is if you want to take the bag and fill it, uh, you know, and and put like three four lenses, the camera and your laptop, then it's 
going to be too heavy. Right. So we're almost like governed. Our bag choices are governed by the laptop size, not by the kit that we want to carry almost. Well, in this case, that was that was the case for me, at least. Yeah. Well, it's same for me, though. Like I, I have the Berlin 2, which is a step between the Bowery, the smallest little one, which can hardly even carry an iPad, and the Prince Street, which carries an iPad or an 11-inch MacBook Air. But like I, I have a MacBook. I can't fit that in the Berlin 2, so now I want a bigger bag. And so like, it doesn't matter about what kit I want to carry. I just want to take my laptop with me. <laughs> and, I'm right there with you. Right. Yeah. Right there, right there with you guys. <laughs> right. Another thing was that I already own a, a Think Tank Retrospective 5. So I already have a smaller messenger bag, kind of similar to the Prince Street, a little smaller than the Prince Street, but not really that different. So getting the Prince Street would, would have been redundant almost. So yeah, that's that's also encouraged me to go for the Brixton. And like I said, I'm still glad I did. But Dan, do you have an Ona bag? I do. Which one? Yeah, um, I have the leather Bowery. Nice. Oh, okay, the nice small one. Yeah, it looks exactly like uh, Alvaro's bag. <laughs> I mean, look, it's it looks like a little tiny miniature version of it. Um, and you like it? I, you know, I really love it. I carried it um, quite a bit today. I, what I do is I've just always got uh, my RX1R pretty much always and my um, and my OM1 in there with a couple batteries, a couple cards, um, um, a little notebook and a pen. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's, I pretty much carry that all the time. Guys, he, he's got an RX1R and he's got a notebook and a pen. And, oh, he's like my kind of guy. This is perfect. <laughs> the thing I don't use the notebook is uh, I'm always, I always feel like I'm, uh, I would shame the guys who make the field notes notebooks because I just don't use it enough. I have it there in case. Uh, I, I won't mention it to Jim. I, he lives in Portland. It's required. Like you're not allowed out in public in Portland without a notebook and a beer. Like it's just. Well, and I, I do have the perfect pen though. It's the the Fisher Space Pen, the little bullet. Of course you do. There's. Yes, I'm holding one right now. Oh my God, are you? Mr. Draplin would be happy. Uh, yep, yep. It's um, yeah, no, it's 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 a great bag, but I'm in the same exact boat and for a long time i was working for a bank and i had i was carrying around my corporate laptop with a big ridiculous cordura uh, bag that was issued you know with the with the um with the laptop (laughs) issued shucks (laughs) oh it was terrible and (laughs) it was the most awful bag and the most awful laptop but i would just throw my camera in a little i had one of those think tank mirrorless mover bags and I would just throw my digital camera in that and throw that inside my, my work laptop bag. Um, and, but now I'm, I'm seriously considering now that I'm not doing that anymore and I get to carry my MacBook instead. I've been looking at all these bags and I love my, my Ona bag and I think, well, I could get the bigger one. But I'm totally torn. I don't know which one to go with. And, and it's for that same reason. It's the size thing. Right. If it helps, I believe what makes the most sense is if you go with the Brixton, don't get the leather one. Like get either the nylon or the canvas versions. Those will probably be a little bit lighter. I don't know if I can do that. Oh, I don't blame you. <laughs> it's like cheating. You know, all of this, all of this uh, talk about bags recently and, and my review of the Wotan craft makes me realize how difficult it is for bag manufacturers to actually balance all of these different factors when they're oh, designing yeah. these bags, right? Because on the one hand, you know that aesthetically leather has that, that, charm to it that people gravitate towards but on the other hand it sounds like on a you know past a certain size of bag it just becomes it adds so much to the weight that it becomes impractical almost to the point of like like josh was asking like does it does it make it a poorly designed bag in a sense
sense because it sacrifices too much on the practicality front in favor of um, of the aesthetic front where, you know, a different bag that blends leather with canvas or is just canvas or is just nylon or whatever other materials are used might be a better choice um Right, you know, the balancing aesthetics versus practicality might might have to be different um, past a certain size of bag because otherwise mm-hmm. the bag itself is a weight, it's a burden, which is kind of counterproductive. Well, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but um, Alvar, I see that you you use yours. Yeah, I did pretty heavily. I am just always worried about scratching it. I don't care. I don't care. I like the the. The more scratches it gets, the the, the happier I am. Really. <laughs> I sit there and scratch it for fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm the exact opposite. When I get a scratch, I'm like the first thing I do is I just kind of rub it and see if it comes out, <laughs> which is just terrible. Mine is it's scratched because I've had it for a couple of years now. Um, but also, like if it rains, I, I'm a little bit worried about it. Um, right. And, and what I've been finding lately is for photo shoots. Now that I'm doing that more full time. I, you know, my, my think tank backpack is kind of the way to go for that. I just stuff the thing completely full of everything I could possibly want with me. And Hey, I have that same backpack, right? It's awesome. It's yeah. Awesome. It's, um, it's amazing how much you can fit in that thing. Yeah. I believe it. Wait, which one, which one? Um, the, um, urban approach. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah the 15. Yeah. 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 That, um, I did the, the review that Josh was so kind, uh, um, to publish this last, uh, end of this last year you knocked it out of the park it was fun it, it was, was fun. great i haven't really done anything like that before so it was... the only thing i regret about it is that i can't review it now <laughs> <laughs> you should add to it you should do it in uh i don't no need you knocked it out it was great <laughs> it was it was a lot it's a lot of, it's a really great bag and i use it i primarily use it for traveling so i think that's the part that's interesting um and and now that i'm doing photo shoots i'll just bring that and i have it stuffed full of wireless triggers and flashes and all the lenses I could need. But I think that the part that's interesting about all these different bags is that you can have different uses for them. Right. And, and that's why like the Bowery is great. It's great when I just, for a daily, I don't really want to carry my laptop. I might want some other kind of just stuff, um, a checkbook or, um, you know, some kind of note that I can just stuff in the back pocket, but I wouldn't think of bringing that on a photo shoot. Um, even if I only needed a camera, because it just wouldn't have enough, um, wouldn't have enough space, and wouldn't have the flexibility I would need. That better be a check with a Q, not with a CK. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and the funny part is that having been a banker for for the last few years, I don't ever write checks unless that's the only way I can pay. Oh, the best! They're the best. Yeah. I'm actually frustrated. I So I used to have this perfect life where I had just one bag and I didn't really care about the existence of other bags and it was all fine. And I made that bag work for everything. And now you guys have emerged with all your fancy bag reviews and blah, blah, blah. And I've done my first fancy bag review. And now I'm frustrated because now I realize that what Dan was just saying is is true. There are different uses where different bags are better. But unfortunately for my wallet, that means that you can't just sort of have one bag. Uh, it's a pain. It's an addiction. Yeah, it is an addiction. I'm beginning to understand now. Yeah, it's like you'd been living in black and white and now suddenly there's color. <laughs> well, I don't know if I go so far. I mean, I still love my my Think Tank retrospective bags. I've, I've got the, um, I think I've got almost every size that they, no, that's not true. I've got two of the sizes. Every. Uh, almost every size of retrospective bag, no. Um, but I do, I do love them because it, you know, for the for the longest time, basically the only choice that I made in the bag world is, you know, 
do I get the slightly longer one or do I get the slightly fatter one? And that's that was my decision making. Usually I could fit everything that I needed in either one. The only thing that made the difference was, um, am I bringing a laptop or not? And that has now transitioned into, am I bringing my iPad or not? So those were the days, man. Those were the days. And now I've got, I've got the Wotan craft scout. I've got those bags. It's just, (laughs) Hey Dan, what do you, what do you uh, like? Do you pound a bunch of stuff? Like, do you have all the dividers in your urban approach 15 or, or have you removed a bunch so that you have like a, like a day pack area? You know, it kind of depends on what I'm doing. Like when I'm traveling, I usually leave almost the entire part uh, the bottom part empty. Okay. Right. So I just take all the dividers out of the bottom and that way I, cause I have three kids as well. And, and my wife doesn't like to carry, uh, she does, she kind of wants to pawn off the computer duties on me. So I've got usually at least one, if not two laptops in my bag. Wow. <laughs> when we travel, <laughs> we both have the 13 inch uh, retina. Um, and then I, I've got all the snacks and sometimes I'll throw like a, a windbreaker or a, or a, like a merino sweater or something in there. Okay. So when I'm traveling, a lot of times I will take everything out. But right now, the way I have it set up is that that think tank, that backpack is only, it's it's set up ready to go for photo shoot stuff. So it has my A7 and all my lenses for that camera, um, wireless triggers, um, a couple snack bars because inevitably I'll end up, you know, hungry. And then like stuff like my, like it has a strap in there and a battery pack so I can recharge on the fly. And I usually just carry, I usually carry almost all of the gear for that in that backpack at all times. Um, so normally I have lots of dividers in there, but I have them arranged a little funky so that it's a little more flexible. I I just find it a little small for like, if if I was to go on a, like a, a long, like a week trip or something like that, I just find it a little bit, I don't know, it might be small. I, that's the only hesitation I have with it. It's not really a day pack. Yeah. It, it's not really a good day pack. Right. Is, is the problem. It, um, it, it will function that way. I think part of the reason it's a little weird is that you don't, you have to open the entire thing to get to the Yeah. Bottom. I was going to say, why did you, why would you like put your small stuff in the bottom? I would put it at the top, but I, anyway, maybe you have a method to the madness. I, Maybe it might just be because I I like having the camera easy to get to. Oh yeah, that's, that's good good point. You know, it is a photography podcast after all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I would love it if they made that same exact bag, but it had a top and a bottom part. Right. Yep. So that so that the bottom part opens separately from the top part. That's our skin or skin backpack or bleh, I right. still can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So something like that would be useful. Right. Um, no, I've I've seriously been looking at something. Um, that would be more of a, I'm actually really happy with that bag for my, for, for photography work. Um, my, my, the only thing I would change up is I'm looking at doing something that's a bigger daily carry laptop, full, you know, full kit kind of a bag. So the owner, bigger bag, the bigger owner bags are something I've been seriously looking at. Don't look too much because I don't look too much. It's going to be an expensive look. Yeah, yeah. You know what else I've been looking at, though? I, nobody ever mentions it. Um, have you guys heard of Saddleback leather bags? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine actually went to college with with Dave, the guy who owns that company and started it. And so I, I have to see his leather Saddleback briefcase every few weeks, and it makes me very jealous. Right. They, I mean, I've never been too crazy about the way they look. Oh, they're amazing. But... <laughs> 
the the large satchel is the one I would I would <laughs> I would go with. Large satchel, Indiana Jones style. A little spendy, and yeah, they're Sweet. they're pretty, yeah they're pretty amazing. So so not to completely derail things, but I was thinking about something while I was listening to last week's podcast. You guys were talking about compact cameras. Yes, and I have an RX one R and use it as my daily camera. Are there any questions you guys might have, or would you be interested in talking about that at all? Yeah, can I have it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. No, for real though, I, I I think we're all quite curious about the camera in general because it's um it, it's such a like little technical marvel the amount of horsepower that they've stuffed into such a small body. Mm-hmm. For me, the biggest question that I have is how do you find it ergonomically? And and part of that I know is is getting used to it. But w- my biggest concern with Sony cameras in general has always been that I just don't find them particularly comfortable. And I know that the the RX One I've spent only a few minutes in a store with it, but um, I really, really like the density and the the general feel of it in my hand. But having not uh-huh. taken it out anywhere to shoot, I just wonder what your impressions are of it out in the field. Yeah. So I one it maybe is helpful to know kind of my background. So I started off um, this time around with digital cameras on the next five N, which is it has a grip. The grip is probably about the same size as the original A seven. Okay. Um, and so I got used to that, that body style, the grip on the one side with the lens kind of on the other side. And then I moved to an X7 and then I moved to an A7. Um, well, actually, I actually, I forget. I bought an X100S in the middle. There. That was how I discovered Dan's work, by the way, guys, his X100S review. Yeah. Top notch. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, and I enjoyed the files from that camera, but I really hated using it. Oh. The X100. Yeah, um, it was. I, I wanted to love it because I've got a one of my really good friends here in Portland is a photographer, and he is all he's either full frame Nikon or he's a Fuji, and he kind of does all of his works on the food or on the Nikon, all of his personals on Fuji. Right. And so I wanted to like it. I kind of wanted to join the club, and I just found that I just it couldn't. I couldn't get comfortable with it. So I I got rid of it, moved up to the A7, and I've and I just loved the A7. And I've admired the RX1 from afar for a long time. I had a couple different friends who have had them. Um, a local local guy um, was local. Um, Duncan Davidson um, here in Portland had one. And, oh, he knows everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking. Yeah. Uh, Portland's a Portland's not a big place, but it was kind of funny because we, you know, I got to see his camera and we we're checking it out, and I, I immediately thought man this thing feels like it's it's really like like mario said it's dense it's really dense um and it i think if you were just looking at it um, on pictures you'd say well that looks kind of similar to like an x100 in terms of hey it's a rectangular body um with a lens that sticks out a little bit but here's the thing that i found is being used to sony cameras that have a grip the rx1 it doesn't have a grip right i mean that's a big difference right but the way that the the way that it feels in terms of how the menus work, the look of the um, and I have the EVF on mine um, pretty much all the time, but the way the EVF looks, it has the same color, it has the same look, the same that same OLED uh, deep black, um, really rich color look that you get from all the other Sony cameras, so it feels immediately familiar. 
uh, if and I was I was coming from the A7 A7 II, and then I bought that RX1, and in mine's the RX1, R, it's the RX1R. It immediately felt really comfortable. I know how the colors look. I know what the files are going to look like. Um, so, if you're a Sony shooter, it'll feel like home. Right. Um, Wait, so you actually enjoy the menu system of Sony cameras? Because that's one of the most contentious points no, no. ever. <laughs> I, I had to do a double take too. <laughs> Let me. So here's this is my kind of my thought on Sony. Everybody always is really brutal towards Sony on the menus, and this maybe kind of plays in a little bit to my article on manual controls. <laughs> I have my camera set up so that I never have to go into the menu. The on my A7, the rear dial is shutter speed. The front dial is aperture. The lower wheel is ISL. Nice. I don't ever have, I mean, I don't fiddle with white balance because I shoot raw. I don't really care about white balance. Um, I have a couple buttons set to change like um, the drive mode. And, um, but that's pretty much it. There's not much else I ever fiddle with. How do you change the focus point? Um, I have it set on center focus. Okay, always. And I, it's on, it's on, it's on, yeah, it's on, it's, I also have it on flexible so I can move it by clicking one of the custom buttons. Right. But I rarely do that. I usually just focus and recompose. Smart. That's kind of my, how I usually do it. Yeah. And once you get used to that, that's very muscle memory yeah. bound, you know, and then. Yeah. I, I know where to get to stuff if I need to. There are a few, um, like when I'm shooting with a manual lens, I have one of the custom buttons, um, the one on the top far right hand corner set to um, to uh, magnify, right? So I can so I, you know so I can magnify the focus point. So that that's that. And then the RX one, you know, the aperture's on the lens, and I have the rear dial set to shutter speed, and the lower uh, control wheel is set to ISO. You have to tap it once, but I, so I just find that it's not that big of an issue, right? You just there's a couple things like if you want to go format your card, yeah, you have to go th dig through the menus to get to that. And there's a few things that Sony hasn't made available in the menus, which is frustrating. Um, I'm really jealous. Anytime Fuji people talk about actually turning off the rear display. <laughs> oh, can you not do that on the RX1R? You cannot do that on any Sony camera. There's what seriously? Yep. You can you can black the screen, which just turns off <laughs> the picture but the, the LCD is still on. What? Yeah, it's just not showing anything, but it's still on. It's crazy. Oh. It's just so, so dumb. I see why you guys neglected to mention that anytime you were talking. I don't think any of us knew it. I didn't know that, but what? That's absurd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. I actually have, I have it set so that one of the buttons on my A7 II will black the screen because if I'm in an environment where I don't want that LCD lighting up, it's, it's helpful. But if you're in a dark environment, you can see see that the screen's still on. It's just it's just showing you black. Wow. Well, except if you except if you cover the viewfinder, in that case, it does shut off, right? That's true. That's true. But yeah, it's so so ultimately, I don't have a big issue with with the menus only because I just get it set up so that I'm dealing with those kind of three parameters for the most part, and then I set it so that the function button can get me to stuff that I really need. Um, if there's a reason, like if I'm shooting burst or if I wanted, if I wanted to do some bracketed images, um, those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, that's, so that's kind of my take on it in terms of the camera. Um, the reason I made, I, I sold a bunch of stuff and worked it out and I found a really nice guy on the Steve Huff forums 
and I bought my RX-1R in like mint condition. The main reason I had to have this camera is because the lens on it is unreal. Yeah. So I don't, you know, if they made this lens for the A7, I would just buy that lens. But it's not, po- it's not physically possible. Right. Because if you've ever seen any of the teardowns, the lens comes to within about two millimeters of the sensor. Yep. Wow. So it's it, they, the, having it interchangeable is not possible. Right. And it's it's actually a perfectly flat back element that lines up and is, is square. It's the exact size of the sensor. So can't, you couldn't do it. I am so jealous right now. Well, and it's an amazing lens. Imagine shooting at f22 with no dust spots. Wow. That's, oh. that's crazy. <laughs> and, and having a perfect sun star. So, I mean, it's it has so many really cool things that it does. But there are a couple drawbacks. Um that make me wish that I could afford and had a good reason um, to buy the RX-1R2. Uh, the articulating rear screen would be awesome. Having the LCD built into the camera, even if it has to pop up, would be awesome. Um, and having Wi-Fi would be really cool too. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I, and I think maybe the biggest thing, the thing that is maybe the most frustrating for all the first-gen RX-1 and RX-1R users is that the autofocus is a little bit slow and pokey, and it doesn't have phase-detect pixels. So you're, it is contrast-based. Okay. Right. And is the, uh, the Mark II, is it stabilized? No, it's okay. not stabilized. Because we were wondering about that, and we couldn't figure it out. Yeah, that's one of the one of the few things they just didn't do that everybody was kind of expecting. Yeah, same thing with the Asus three hundred. Is it's also missing that that I was. Well, yeah, but on the on the RX one front, I think that's a lot more forgivable, specifically because of uh, what Dan was just saying about the way that the lens and sensor are um, designed. Because it's very hard to stabilize a sensor when the lens is two millimeters away from it. Like there's not a lot of room for, you know, and it's a small camera as is. Right, right, right. You're absolutely yeah. right. There's no room. And also uh, it's it's fair enough that at 35 millimeters, you don't really need image stabilization. I was just going to say the same. Yeah, 35. I, I used to have the stabilized 35 on my next seven and it was a great lens, but it felt like there was almost no difference stabilized versus non. You could turn off the OSS and it was the same. Right. It didn't make a big difference, but yeah, you know, it's it's a really fun camera. I actually did um, I did a, a, a couple photo shoots over the last few days, and I actually carried my A7 with the 55 and um, the uh, Rokinon 14 for some internal shot interior shots, and then I carried my 30. I carried the RX1R on the uh, as well, and just. It was awesome. It did great. I mean, it misses focus a few times because it's kind of slow, but um, the images are just amazing. How's the manual focus on it? Um, it's it feels exactly the same as what you um, as as all Sony manual focus. It's by wire, which is fine once you get used to it. But I know some people don't like it. Yeah, I'm one of those people, so that's why I'm asking. I I really wish I really wish that that people uh, well camera manufacturers would uh, bring back the full physical mechanical focus rings on uh, on especially on compact cameras like that. I've, I've always thought that the Fuji X100 series should have it. The RX1 seems like a natural candidate for it. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things that makes me um, very uh, jealous of Leica Q users is, is specifically that. I mean, uh, yes, it's nice to have autofocus, but in situations where you want to manually focus, there's just, I've not yet tried a 
focus by wire system that I think is as uh, immediately intuitive and and precise feeling as a mechanical one. So it's, that's a shame. I think the yeah I I could see that, and I think maybe one of the things that's I'm I, because I'm such a, a Sony user. I've been doing this for you know with them for a while. I'm so used to absolutely silent focusing on the A7, and the RX1 is a little louder because it's it's it has to it actually is moving a larger chunk of the lens. Yeah. Right. Because the RX1 uses a leaf shutter, which is inside the the leaf shutter is actually in the lens, yeah. forward of the focusing lens mechanism. Yeah. So it's moving a larger chunk back and forth. But yeah, you know, it's it's a great camera. I really like it. I think at some point I'll probably end up with the the next version. Um, only because I love the I love using the EVF. I'd love to have a faster have it focus faster. Right. But for right now, um, it's the workflow is really nice because my A7 II and my RX1R are producing almost identical files in terms of size, and they look really really similar. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a good workflow for me. Um, I didn't expect to use it for work, but it it's a really it really has become a, a really nice camera. And because of that leaf shutter, it's it's silent, it's unobtrusive. People don't even know you're taking a picture. Yeah, I do love leaf shutters. Well, don't worry, Dan, because you can always get the RX one R two and then the A seven R two, and you you will once again <laughs> exactly. have very similar files for the very affordable price of only seventeen hundred seventy hundred. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Hang on. It doesn't make any sense for him to do that now because we're only like tops two weeks out from the next series of Sony cameras. So no, he's, right. he's going to skip the entire two generation and just jump right on the threes, whatever they end up being. Or maybe I should get a like a Q, like uh, uh, two of them, like Alvaro. Yeah, see, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, you totally should. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, let me take you off on a little tangent because it's something I was thinking about as I was listening to you guys talk about the the Leica last <clears throat> last week and our conversation today. But I feel like we're in this interesting spot where these mirrorless cameras, there's growing pains and they all have little weird things about them. But this this is we are in the future. We're not we're not in uh, medium format uh, or not I shouldn't say it, large format with ground glass. We're not in rangefinder where you couldn't see depth of field. We're not at SLR where you had to have this mirror so you could look at stuff, but you couldn't see um, real live view in real time. Well, now we're looking at what the sensor actually sees. And it's just a matter of time before you know this becomes the norm, and then there'll be something new. Um, but I, I think it's great that there's so many great, great pieces of, of kit out there, um, and I, I just can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah, you and me both. Right. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. But that being said, it's I try to remember on a daily basis. The whole point is just to get out there and make make photos. So um, I use what I've got. I try not to. Um, I try to stay away from Sony Alpha rumors. That's a good idea. <laughs> it's my favorite website. <laughs> it's good for your wallet too. On, although Andre is a great guy and he he puts a lot of work into it. So um, yeah, I I, uh, I try to remember to just get out. It's all for shooting. That's the reason why this is why this is a thing. Boom. Well said. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Um, we are, I think I speak for everyone when I say we hope to have you back for another episode uh, in the future. Um, for our listeners who maybe have just met you now and are, are not aware of where they can find you on the internet, um, where can they find you on the internet? Thanks. Uh, it's been awesome being here. So um, 
I have been on all the major three, the big the big three social networks as Dan Redwing for a long time. So uh, Dan Redwing on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and then um, the canonical home for all my stuff is actually danhawk.com, and it's spelled just like the bird. H-A-W-K. There you go. Awesome. And it is a treasure trove of some amazing stuff. I <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Absolutely. Yeah, don't go visiting Dad on, on office hours. 